In the United Kingdom, and in some parts of the Commonwealth, there's a long-standing holiday tradition known as the Christmas Cracker. It's basically a piece of candy, or a small treat, stuffed alongside a small explosive, similar to the kind that you might find in a pop gun. Two people grab an end of the cracker, pull it apart, a small explosive takes place, and holiday merriment ensues. Surprisingly, explosives have never really been a part of the long-standing American tradition of Christmas as we know it today. Although, of course, in Miami, any night you hear a firework can't be all that surprising. But fireworks once were part of America's Christmas tradition, particularly in the mid to late 1800s, around the same time as the Christmas cracker was becoming popular in the United Kingdom. Another historical American tradition is large-scale urban fires. Whether it's the Great Chicago Fire, the earthquake in San Francisco that led to a massive city fire in 1906, or even Jacksonville's extraordinarily large Great Fire of 1901, most American cities have some sort of legendary conflagration that led to an enormous amount of destruction and a story reminiscent of Phoenix rising from the ashes. Miami doesn't really have that kind of story. There wasn't a massive fire that wiped out the whole town. The closest thing we have is what came to be known as the Christmas Fire of 1896, and it is an interesting story in and of itself. But there is a whole subplot to it that I find most interesting, and that's what we're going to focus on today. The Christmas Fire of 1896 a fire that significantly damaged downtown Miami, but had an even larger impact on the city's history going forward for decades to come as it related to alcohol. All that and more today. This day in Miami history, December 26th, 1896, the day of the Christmas fire and the day Miami's first saloon burnt to the ground. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 125 years ago this morning, the citizens of Miami were working hard to ensure that the last embers of that morning's fire had been put out. It must have been an exhausting pursuit. But 1896 had been an exhausting year. Recall, back in July, the city had incorporated itself, creating the first city in southeast Florida. And, since 1895, the city had been largely dedicated in constructing Henry Flagler's Royal Palm Hotel and what came to be known as Miami. That construction required at least three different categories of people. Category one, workers. At this point in time, mostly men coming in to this area to build roads, to build buildings, to build the hotel, 
to build infrastructure. Two, business people to provide services to the people building the city. And two, category three, the city's founders, people like Julia Tuttle, William Brickle, and Mary Brickle. Generally, those three categories were in agreement on a great many things. Miami was a speculative investment for all of them, and they were tied together in its success. One notable area of disagreement, though, was about the sale and consumption of alcohol. Both Julia Tuttle and the Brickles placed deed restrictions on properties in the city of Miami to prohibit those properties from becoming saloons. The only property that did not have the deed restriction in place was Henry Flagler's Royal Palm Hotel, which was permitted to sell alcohol during the winter tourist season. But that was it. If you purchased any other property in the city of Miami, according to the covenant on the deed, you were, in perpetuity, prohibited from consuming or selling alcohol on that property. That was not going to fly with the hundreds of men who had streamed into Miami and surrounding areas to help build the city. And it didn't sit that well with many of the business class in the city who wanted to profit from alcohol, like Henry Flagler was about to do. So what could be the solution to this impasse? Well, at least early on, there was a very simple answer. The boundaries of the city of Miami, where these deed restrictions were in place, were roughly using today's street numbering between North 11th Street and South 11th Street. So what happened? An area known as North Miami formed starting at 12th Street. When you think of downtown Miami, you might think of the Adrian Arch Center. That was not within the first boundaries of the city. You might think of the Perez Art Museum, not within the boundaries of the first city. Even the nightclub 11, which is named after 11th Street, would not be in the boundaries of the city because it is on the north side of 11th Street. Miami wasn't that big at the beginning. And so there was a lot of leeway for people who were willing to take a slight trip to the north to visit what came to be known as North Miami. John Sewell, the third mayor of Miami and one of the city's founders in 1896, recalls North Miami in his recollections, which were lovingly recreated by Arvermore Parks in the book Miami Memoirs. Some of the saloons were built within 20 feet of the city limits, as they wished to be just as close to the city as possible, and they had all the vices up there that were ever in the worst frontier town. All kinds of gambling and all kinds of vices. And the night after payday, there were great times, the workmen spending their money getting drunk, fighting, shooting, and killing. I have known as high as three or four dead men there after one night's jamboree. They had a number of dance halls, and you could hear the dancing and music for half mile around until the dead hours of the night. It sounds like a good time, as long as you don't wind up dead. Of course, this is exactly what Julia Tuttle and the Brickles wanted to avoid. They didn't want drunkenness in their city. They wanted a new model city for America, a tourist destination with only the highest level of moral standards. But what if there was another way? What if a well-established saloon owner who had previously run a well-known business in another part of the state could come into Miami and start a saloon in downtown? 
That was the thought process that Loesley and Reneker had in mind when they bought a building in downtown Miami. Now, one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is being able to find stuff that has been lost to the sands of time and putting back together some information that no one had really been able to find before. In every reference of this proposed saloon in downtown Miami, it's been connected to Loesley and Reneker. That was the name that appeared in the Miami Metropolis in 1896. That's the name that appears in Mayor Sewell's uh, recollections in his memoir. It's always Loesley and Reneker. It never mentions their full names. And I thought that was kind of weird that on first reference in a newspaper and in a memoir, only last names are given. You almost never see that in published work. Never before have the full names of these proprietors been known, at least in the context of the Miami building. But I'm pretty confident in saying I know who they are. The easy name is Frederick Alfie Loesley, who was a Swiss immigrant to Florida. He arrived in Titusville in 1882. Uh, He was married there in 1888 and had established a saloon in town. Uh, He was known for being a saloon operator in Titusville up the coast, which was just north of Dade County at the time, remember? At the time, Miami-Dade County was then known as Dade County and extended all the way up to Jupiter Inlet and south through the Keys. Uh, So Loesley had a reputation for running saloons. It's pretty understandable that he would be involved. But the Reneker name, that was the name that was a little bit tricky. But on page 5 of the September 19, 1890 edition of the East Coast Advocate published in Titusville, we have a copy of a petition to the Honorable Board of County Commissioners of Brevard County, Florida. Your petitioners, F.A. Loesley and Frank Reneker, composing the firm of Loesley and Reneker, in compliance with the provisions of Chapter 3416 of the Laws of the State of Florida, respectfully apply to your honorable body for the right to sell intoxicating liquors, wines, and beer in Election District Number 2, Titusville, in said Brevard County and ask that a permit be given them for the same. When the newspaper mentioned Loesley and Reneker, when Sewell mentioned Loesley and Reneker, they weren't saying it as a last name. They were saying it as a business name, because it was a business name. A business run by Frederick Alfie Loesley and Frank Reneker. Loesley and Reneker entered into a verbal agreement with William M. Brown, known as the first banker of Miami, in the fall of 1896. They had acquired a building located on the southwest corner of Avenue D and 13th Street, what is now South Miami Avenue and Southwest 1st Street, pretty much smack dab in the middle of downtown. There was an agreement, a handshake, and enough confidence on the part of Loesley and Reneker to start moving furniture into the building. However, they claimed that Brown never informed them about the deed restriction as it related to alcohol. Brown denied this and also used John B. Riley as a witness to state that, yes, they had been informed. Now, John B. Riley is not just someone on the street. He was actually the first mayor of Miami. Is it possible that Brown did not inform them about the deed restriction? Yes. Is it possible that they were mistaken? Absolutely. We don't quite know the truth, and we'll talk more about that in a second. No matter the case, Loesley and Reneker refused to accept the full completed deed from Brown, basically saying that any violation of the deed covenant would fall on his head, not theirs. And that left the case in the courts. Now, this was particularly interesting 
Obviously, if someone could crack the deed restriction and establish a saloon in Miami, that would change the dynamics of the city forever. But there were plenty of other property owners and business owners who were very interested in seeing the legality of the deed restriction challenged entirely. They wanted Loesley and Reneker to be the Trojan horse, the one case that could invalidate all the deed restrictions. On the other hand, there were the city founders and the original residents of the area who moved to Miami particularly to avoid what they considered the vice and immorality of alcohol. Weren't their wishes at least somewhat important in guiding the city going forward? Judge Alan Edgar Heiser, one of the early legends in Dade County legal circles, issued a temporary restraining order against sales at the property so the larger legal questions could be considered. An appeals court judge, John Dozier Broom, refused to dissolve the injunction and basically set the case on a track to appear in front of the Florida State Supreme Court either by the end of 1896 or very early on in 1897. The question was going to be answered. The deed restrictions were going to be reviewed, and they were either going to be upheld at the state court level or dissolved forever. For the group of Miami citizens who supported the status quo, maintaining the deed restrictions but also allowing the sale of alcohol in areas around the city, it would take some kind of Christmas miracle to stop the intervention from happening. And now, we finally return to the fire. No definitive source of the first embers of the fire was ever found. However, an article from the Miami Metropolis on January 1st, 1897, the first issue published after the fire, gives a solid hint as to what may have caused it. A large number of fireworks were exploded on the streets and in, on, and under the buildings, regardless of the city ordinance forbidding fireworks being exploded on any of the streets of the city. Many were very careless in the way they exploded fireworks, and we noticed in several instances where they were thrown under buildings and into and upon them. It seems most reasonable to suppose that the fire was a sequel to our Christmas jollification in fireworks. It was J.L. Finnessy who apparently first discovered the fire in or around E.L. Brady and Company's grocery building on the northeast corner of Avenue D and 14th Street. That would be South Miami Avenue and South 2nd Street today, just one block away from Loesley and Reneker's would-be saloon. There were a total of 28 buildings destroyed in the fire, most notably the Brady Grocery Building, Captain E.H. Chase's Pool Room, a clothier operated by Isidore Cohen and Julius Franks, Franks being the only fatality in the fire, a bottling works plant by Alois Zapf, and the saloon owned by Loesley and Reneker. Mayor Sewell provides one light-hearted recollection of the night, illustrating the tension between the dries and the wets of Dade County. Both sides of the street were solid wooden buildings, but before the fire got to the proposed saloon, the firefighters broke open the doors and rolled out the barrels of liquor, and all who wanted it drank to their heart's content and drank freely as the liquor was free that day. By sunrise on the 26th, the damage was done. According to John Sewell, 
the buildings destroyed in the Christmas fire of 1896 were responsible for about half the total business in the entire city of Miami at that point in time. For most any other city, it would be an absolutely devastating blow that would be nearly impossible to recover from. However, many city leaders looked at this fire as an opportunity. The city had been slapped together in a matter of days or weeks in anticipation of the arrival of the railroad in 1895 and the incorporation of the city in 1896. Folks were aware of the danger of these ramshackle wooden buildings being used as long-term investment properties. The fire provided a clear call for stricter building codes and a more professional firefighting service. And even though another fire would come around in 1899, the city would respond, and eventually a proper Miami-Dade fire rescue service would be established and a stricter safety code would be instituted that would prevent the kind of large-scale fire we saw in the late 1800s. And as for saloons, well, Loesley and Renneker never got their day in court because the building they were fighting over no longer existed. It appears that Loesley returned to Titusville and continued his saloon operation there. As for Renneker, that's a harder story to tell. What we do know is that the saloons did come to downtown Miami. And the person most responsible for that was neither Loesley nor Renneker. It was a Tuttle, Harry Tuttle. His mother, Julia, mother of the city of Miami, died in 1898. And as executor of her estate, he began issuing new deeds without the restriction. Within less than 10 years, in about 1903 or 1904, you begin to see a number of saloons begin to operate first on these unrestricted territories, and then on territories that had restrictions on them, once the owners realized that no one was going to come and sue them for violating the covenant. So during this holiday season, as we think about so many things, take a moment out and think about the history of Miami, and think about Frederick Alfie Loesley and Frank Renneker, pioneers of alcohol in Miami, and what might have been if their would-be saloon hadn't burned to the ground the day after Christmas, 1896. As always, I want to give a few thank yous in this episode before we wrap up. Uh, the first thank you, as always, is to you, the listener, for taking the time out, uh, for giving your attention and your interest in Miami history. Um, I particularly enjoy this topic of the history of, of alcohol and prohibition in Miami and really centering it around this, this formative fire uh, I think is quite interesting. I hope you think so too. Um, as always, I will ask you, if you like the show, please do leave a review, especially on Apple uh, uh, Podcasts or your preferred podcast provider. It really does help the show. If you want more people to hear content like this, if you want to give me the opportunity to make more content like this, uh, a review is really something wonderful you can do to support the show. Um, if you don't like the show, you can contact me at thisdaymiamipod at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to get feedback. I'd love to get ideas for how to improve. Uh, hopefully there's not too much negative feedback. But even if you do have negative feedback and, and you've listened this far, uh, I do still want to hear it. Um, I always do like to thank uh, the sources that I lean on in my kind of information gathering and reporting. Uh, the first one is a resource that I have used uh, so much 
uh, in uh, this last year, the University of Florida Digital Collections and their Florida Digital Newspaper Library. Uh, they have a rather remarkable archive of the Miami Metropolis dating back to its first issue in 1896. If you like old news stuff, uh, take some time and just Google Florida Digital Newspaper Library. Uh, it's a partnership between the University of Florida Libraries and the uh, State Library and Archives of Florida. It's just super. Um, I also want to thank uh, someone who I, I thanked before and, and really anyone interested in Miami uh, needs to be thanking Dr. Paul S. George. Um, his article on the Miami Christmas Time Fire of 1896 at miami-history.com uh, is very useful in, in uh, kind of helping me to organize my thoughts about this. Uh, I did lean on the Metropolis and their reporting and um, uh, uh, Mayor Sewell's book, which I'll talk about in a second. Uh, but uh, Dr. George's writing is always uh, incredibly valuable. If you like Miami history, uh, you really need to be uh, following him and his work. Um, I do want to thank uh, the dearly departed Arva Moore Parks, um, who has done so much for history uh, in our community. Uh, her work, Miami Memoirs, uh, which is basically a kind of a pictorial reimagining of John Sewell's memoirs, the original memoirs written by Mayor Sewell. Uh, she took them, uh, uh, did almost no editing, but ensured that it was it was clear, able to be read, and, and uh, accompanied the text with a variety of interesting photos uh, in only the way she could. Um, take the time out. Rent it from your local library, especially if you're here in South Florida, or find it on a bookseller. Uh, it's a really interesting look at that earliest period of Miami. Uh, John Sewell was so intimately involved in that. Um, it, it's a worthwhile read, for sure. Um, and yeah, that's about it. Um, we look forward to a new episode in the new year. Um, knock on wood, that episode will drop on January 1st of 2022. So you're, we, we went through a little bit of a dry spell here. Uh, I like to do uh, once a month episodes. That might change in the new year. We'll see. Um, but we did our early November episode and then a, uh, a late December episode. But you're, the the uh, the drought of that last six weeks or so uh, is going to turn from famine to feast as I'm really hoping for a January 1st episode with a really interesting topic that I had no idea about until, let's say, two or three weeks ago. And it should be particularly relevant uh, in terms of some of the conversations that have been going on in our community over the last couple of weeks. So I, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, again, follow us on social media at This Day Miami Pod, Facebook, Twitter. You can find us there, thisdaymiamipod.com. Uh, it's the website home. Still working on building that out. Um, and yeah, that's about it. So uh, again, to you at home, thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you've had a wonderful holiday season. I hope you have a wonderful build-up to the new year. And um, I will be talking to you in 2022. And so until next time, I've been Matthew Bunch. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? 
We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.